0: So Luke 24 in context, you get, uh, it's Easter morning or Easter evening. Jesus has risen from the dead and he's appeared to the disciples at the, or he hasn't, he's appeared to the women at the, hello Beth. He appeared to the, the women at the cave. Uh, the angels have appeared to... Um, a couple of disciples, Peter and John, who ran to the tomb that morning. So if you kind of recount the the Easter morning insanity, it's like, it's fun to kind of walk through this. I did it, like during COVID, the the first COVID Easter when like sanctuary was kind of empty, um, there wasn't like a time cap on how long I could preach. So I just like took my time in the pulpit, um, for better or for worse. We just, I kind of walked through what it must've been like on that first Easter. You got the women, remember how everybody had everyone had rallied behind Jesus and he's going into Jerusalem now for Holy Week, on, on, especially on Palm Sunday as he enters one week prior to Easter. He comes, into, he comes into Jerusalem and the people are waving the palm branches of victory expecting him to be this militaristic Messiah leader. Um, and they're singing Hosanna. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which we actually sing in the Sanctus. We'll come back to that. So the Sanctus is that um, is the phrase or is the is the song that we sing just before the words of institution in the divine service because it it's the it ties together Isaiah in the temple I think Old Testament when Isaiah shows up in the temple and he's in the presence of God and he sees the the three the three times holy God holy 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 uh, so we sing the voice of uh, Isaiah. And then we tie that together to Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as, he's, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Now this kind of sets us up for all these people, the women, the disciples, the, all the locals, the, all the Jews in, in Jerusalem are excited about Jesus going to come in and they don't know, they don't know how he's going to do it, but they're pretty sure he's going to wipe, he's going to mow this place down. James and John have been saying, uh, we, should, we should call down fire from heaven to blast all these people who aren't believing in you. And so there's this expectation of Jesus' power, which he is like, he's been like zapping it out. I mean, imagine like, if you all of Jesus' miracles, you can picture it like shooting electricity out of his fingers. So he would just be like zapping people over there, and they're better, and zapping people over there, but he's holding back. So they're thinking, he's just gonna unleash and he goes in, and obviously we know what happens, Good Friday, the, the trials, see the rest, the trials, the, the beatings, the crucifixion, the being forsaken by God, and then finally his death on the cross. Spoiler alert. Uh, I assume you know that by now. He does die at the end. But don't worry, he comes back in the sequel. <laughs> um, so Jesus, uh, on, on, on Good Friday, he's dead. He put him in the tomb. Remember the significance of getting him off of the... They don't want him on the cross, on the Sabbath, on Saturday, which starts at sunset. So they wanted him off the tomb, they go to break his legs, and he's already dead. So they don't break his legs, they punch him in the, they stab him in the, in the side, and out of his side comes blood and water, John says. Interesting combination of, that's why you'll see some of this medieval art, which I um, should have brought one for you. But you'll see, like, Lucas Cronach is this uh, Reformation-era Lutheran artist. There's a famous picture of him, of Jesus, and, and out of his side, you got the soldier here who's just stabbed him, and his side has obviously been pierced, and he's, he's got blood and t- two streams, blood and water spraying out of its side. Um, not in a horror movie, <laughs> gross kind of a way, but there's two sprays of one water, one blood, and the, and the blood is actually going into a chalice, which is held in some portrayals by Luther. Martin Luther is holding his chalice. And one is going into a baptismal font. Which thing in the theology there, as we've talked about before, the salvation that was won on the cross is delivered in what we call the sacraments, the means that, that Jesus uses to deliver. So it's a beautiful picture of the blood and water coming out of a side, going into the chalice and going into the, into the font. So that's Friday. Saturday, everybody's like, can't go out because it's, it's the Sabbath. And then as soon as Sunday morning rolls around, they, they get first light and the ladies take off. Now, Mary and Martha, as you can recall, are significant characters in the New Testament. Jesus has gone to, into their house um, had to kind of settle the debacle between Mary and Martha fighting about who should be washing the dishes and who should be listening to Jesus preach. You remember that Mary has chosen the better part; she's listening to my to my preaching. Uh, but they also have this brother Lazarus who has this problem where he, he keeps dying and coming back to life again. <laughs> one time that happened, but so Jesus just rose Lazarus from the dead, the week, just like just before riding into Jerusalem on pass on Pas- or on uh, Palm Sunday, one week before Easter. So. That's an important piece here. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. The crowds are all excited. They've seen this huge miracle, all this momentum leading into Jerusalem. And now when Jesus is killed, everybody scatters because the disciples think, what's going to happen to them? The same thing happened to Jesus, right? So they just take off in all different directions. But they went in these specific places, and it seems that... uh, it's likely some of them went back to Mary and Martha's place because Jesus is clearly fringe of Mary and Martha and sort of like crashing on the couch or on the futon in the guest room or whatever. And they're, they're kind of going to these, maybe back to where they had the Lord's Supper the night before, right? Um, in the upper room that they had rented out. So they're kind of scattered all over the place in, in the cover of darkness. Now, Easter morning, Mary and Martha and some other, another, like, two other ladies named Mary, they're all headed, and you can picture this bickering that happens because we know it from our own uh, family debacle. Like, family is, has, like, the, the best love, but also a lot of animosity and awkward family tensions that's unique to all of our individual families, right? We all have our, our stuff. So you know that families get together for... Um, for funerals. I mean the context of death, context of weddings. So funerals and weddings have all this stress tied up with them already. So you've got Thanksgiving, all the family together, and then you add to it, grandma just died on top of it, and it's just like all this extra stress. So at Mary and Martha's house, they've just they've just watched Jesus die and they're processing this and they're starting to maybe blame. They're like how come the boys all ran? All the disciples ran. There's all this like growing, lingering animosity and frustration. And maybe they even start fighting on the way back to the cross. We know Mary and Martha have a history of fighting about silly things, right? So they're going to the cross on Easter morning, or uh, going to the tomb rather, to, to uh, anoint Jesus' body for burial. And you gotta get this picture of this fighting. And they get there. And you to flip the camera, it's like Jesus, he... Another the the other gospels. If you put it all together, Jesus like he he had descended into hell already on Saturday to proclaim his victory over the devil. By the way, he didn't go to hell to suffer. He went to hell to proclaim his victory over the devil. We know he didn't suffer in hell because on the cross he said it is finished. Right? I told you you're sitting close. You get that? Um, it is finished means done. Right? So when he went to hell. It wasn't to suffer on our behalf. He suffered hell already on the cross when he was forsaken by God. That's, what, that's the significance of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's forsaken by God on the cross. I think we talked about that in here a couple weeks ago. So uh, Jesus, he ascends. Uh, he, comes, he, he comes back from hell. He's in the tomb, which at this point, God, Jesus isn't holding back his divine power but he's still in this tomb. So we don't know if Jesus just kind of walked up and pushed the tomb out of the way, the, the door, or the angel seems to have done it. But in any, any case, Jesus, like he wakes up, he takes this, this linen shroud that he had been wrapped in like a mummy, and he carefully folds it. And you can picture him just kind of like giggling. It's, I mean, you know the excitement of Easter morning? Just like, I don't know if it's just me, but like here, it smells like bacon because the youth are always cooking their breakfast. It smells like lilies. It's like, it's Easter morning. Your family got big plans. I mean, this is like, for the Christian, this is, it's an emotional day. It's a, it's a very important day. So, but Jesus has almost got that same giddiness about him because he's getting, he's just about to watch everybody get the the news. And he's also, it's like, he's been through it. He's been dreading the cross. He's talked about dreading it like for his entire ministry, uh, how he wanted the cup to pass from him, and all this. So it's finally done, and now he's just enjoying the fruits. So he's like folding up this shroud, kind of giggling. with like, I can't wait till they see. It. They're gonna think I'm folding this up. What are they? I don't know. And, the, and he, then he sneaks over. He grabs like a lawn chair and he hides in the bushes. And he and he watches them come up. And they and they just they start to panic. Like where is he? I don't know. Where's the body? And they some of them leave. And you see this angel. I think it's in maybe it's Mark's account they actually talked about the angel just kind of sitting there on the rock as if he just, he swatted the rock out of the way and just kind of sat down. I think of him like a leprechaun, like a little jolly old sitting on the rock with this tremendous news that he's excited to to share. Where have you you hid the the body? Um, They they go running back to tell the other disciples, likely in this this locked room, which we'll come back to in a second. One person sticks around, uh, Mary. She sticks around, Mary Magdalene. And she's, she thinks Jesus is the gardener. Jesus obviously is like, he's been waiting for this moment. to like, surprise, you know. Uh, Rabboni, she says, don't cling to me. And there's this happy reunion there. And so then she goes running back to tell the disciples. Somehow then Jesus teleports to the women. He appears to them somewhere as they're running back to, to the disciples in the locked room. So this is so far Easter morning. They, the women get back to Peter and, J, Peter and John, wherever they are. And they say, hey, Jesus is in the tomb. And some angels say that he had risen from the dead. And they go tearing back to the tomb to see it with their own eyes. And of course, they don't get there. They get there and he's not there. They go peering in and Jesus isn't there. So then they kind of, they're befuddled. Other disciples who had heard the news, they're like, all right, last night we saw Jesus die. Pretty sure bodies don't come back from the dead, which they should have known better. Lazarus was just raised from the dead. But a couple of these guys... In the group of disciples, they take off and go to a town seven miles, seven miles away, I think, Emmaus. A town of Emmaus. And um, for whatever reason, it's, it's likely maybe they were hiding, maybe they're running in fear. Uh, their, their business, I mean, they, they've been following Jesus for all these years now, thinking there was going to be a big rebellion, and now he's dead, so I guess we've got to go back to the fried chicken business or whatever they were doing before up in Emmaus. So they're back on the road to Emmaus, and now it's Easter-like easter afternoon where we are in Luke 24. That was the longest introduction of all time, but fun. Luke 24, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, Let me read it for us here. We'll fast forward to um, maybe verse 12. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, that Jesus carefully folded up earlier, laughing with glee. And then Peter went home, marveling at what had happened. The very day, two of them, the disciples, who had kind of gotten word of this resurrect of this Jesus being gone, they were going to a village named Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. He was a sidler. if you're a Seinfeld fan. <laughs> Nobody? Seinfeld? God. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So notice the passive here. This is a key verse. Their eyes, it's not that they didn't recognize him. Their eyes were kept. So were they active or passive? Were the disciples active or Passive. Passive, so active is the one who does the action. The passive is the one who receives the action. Their eyes were kept. So it wasn't that they didn't recognize him, but their eyes were blinded. This is important because we're going to come back to it. And And in the Greek, whenever this occurs, whenever there's a verb for which a noun, a subject is not attached, it's called a divine passive, divine God. God did the action for which the person is a passive recipient. So God closes their eyes from recognizing him. And he says to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Kind of a weird way to start a convo in an elevator. What are you guys talking about? And they stood still looking sad, because we know the context. They had just been at the cross. They ran away in shame. They've been hiding. Now they think they're going to have to return to this life of despair. And like before they at least had the hope of the resurrection from the dead, and this Jesus of forgiveness of sins, all that wrapped into the message of Jesus, and all of it's just shattered. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they're like, have you been living under a rock? Everybody knows. Everybody was was watching this crucifixion happen. Of course, how do you not know this? He says, what things? And they say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Of course, we know that he, he, in fact, did it. But they missed how it was happening. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. and When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, that's shorthand, I guess that's longhand for what we call the Old Testament. Moses, the first five books, and the prophets, all the other books he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Side note here, when Jesus, it's it's recorded in Luke 24, a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Jesus is having with his disciples. So when Luke says that Jesus interpreted the scriptures to them, it was just the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. It wasn't like Jesus said, John 3.16 is about me. There's no John 3.16 for like 40 years from this point. So Jesus is saying the whole Old Testament is full of these clear pictures of me. So he goes through all these things concerning himself from Moses and the prophets. They still don't see it, but he's been teaching them. So, so notice, follow the, the emo- emotional trajectory of major letdown and, and despair and confusion, basically our world. Jesus comes up along aside them, and unfolds to them the Scriptures. This is a little snapshot of our Christian life. Then, as they drew near to the village to which they were going, he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. That's where we get our hymn, Abide With Me, Abide With Me, Fast Falls, The Eventide. That's from this text. It's evening and the day is far spent. Stay with us. So what are they asking Jesus to do? Stay with us, right? We want your presence, not somewhere else. We want your presence where? Here. It's a clear point. Where do they want his presence? Here. Okay. So he went, uh, he went in to stay with them as they asked. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Which the Greek, it's like a clear poem. It's like three words in a row. Boom, boom, boom. It's straight out of the words of institution. So three days ago, this same thing happened, which was, which was the last time these guys saw Jesus before he was crucified. And What was he doing? Giving them the Lord's Supper, instituting the supper. He takes bread, breaks it, blesses it, and gives it to them, and then... Verse 31, and their eyes were opened. Remember how before they were closed, passive, and now they were open. So passive. God has closed their eyes specifically so he could open them here. And so uh, keep going. Uh, and they, they, then he vanished from their sight. I always picture like a, a biscuit in the air and then Jesus breaks it and then he disappears and the biscuit like falls on the, on the counter because he he vanishes from their sight. It doesn't like he doesn't get up and excuse himself and leave. He just disappears. They said to each other, "Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to us on the while he talked with us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures?" And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, which by the way is a seven mile sprint. Because you're right, at this point there there's no they they've never been so excited about anything ever before, and so they are hauling. They get to Jerusalem, they find the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And where we get our Christ is risen, he has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told Then they told what had happened to, on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So Luke's, Luke's terminology for the Lord's Supper is the breaking of the bread. We see it in Acts 2, which you can kind of... Well, I'll just tell you. So the early church in Acts 2 is described as meeting together for prayer, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the teaching of the apostles. The apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, prayer. The breaking of the bread, isn't it so that they get together once a week to slice, you know, a wonder bread or whatever bread is. I don't even know. What's a popular bread? Wonder bread is that thing? Maybe? I don't know. So, so the breaking of the bread is a significant tie to the Lord's Supper because that's what Luke is calling it. So, they, so Jesus says, God has closed the disciples' eyes. They say, we want your presence to be with us. And he says, I'm going to be with you in this meal. So he takes the bread. He gives them the same meal that he's instituted, reminding them of what he's just given them three days ago. And as soon as they see him, as soon as he, he gives them the meal, they see him, disappears, vanishes from their sight. But Jesus is still there because this is the way he wants to be known after the cross. He takes his presence and he gives it to his people in the way that he wants to be known. Uh, So this this is really what the church is about is the same way of Jesus coming alongside us having the scriptures unfolded for us, which is our daily ongoing teaching of the apostles' teaching in Acts 2 and our ongoing learning the Lord's word throughout our lives. Um, him coming alongside of us in our times of trial and, and chaos and seemingly uh, betrayal and so many things crashing around us. Jesus comes alongside us. It's gonna be okay. I'm gonna abide with you, but I'm not gonna stick around. Like, I don't, need a, I don't need a futon in the guest room. I'm gonna be present for you in this supper. And through this supper, he's delivering the cross. Now, um, we'll continue talking about the Lord's Supper, but just a side note on going back to my Easter narrative. Um, When when these guys get back to the room, remember, you see somebody else and said, hey, he appeared to Simon. So Jesus has appeared to, to Simon Peter. He's appeared to the women, but they don't all believe the women. So Have you ever had someone, if you have really good news, you're telling someone they just straight up don't believe you? Does it make it better or worse if they just don't believe you because you're a girl? Does that make you feel good? I don't believe you because you're a girl. No, not the best feeling in the world. Would that make you a little bit upset? Yes, so imagine the tension in that room. We saw Jesus. No, we'll go check for ourselves. (laughs) Peter and John go, we saw Jesus. Yeah, and was, so then Simon's like, I saw Jesus, he appeared to me. And the, the ladies are like, now you believe us? But then these other guys, we didn't see him, we weren't there, and we know, we know uh, doubting Thomas isn't there. Which by the way, Thomas is probably the only brave one. He probably ran to the grocery store to buy like food because all the, everybody else is hiding in the room. So they're locked in the room out of fear of the Jews not, they give the secret password. These two guys come running in, and they're like, guys, you never guess who appeared to us in the breaking of the bread. It all makes sense now. The Lord's Supper, it's all coming together. And, but there's fighting. It's just total chaos. I, I used to always picture it as like a, a locker room after a loss. Everybody's like downtrodden. I think it's chaotic. It's completely nuts. And then Jesus, and this is John 20, 21. Flip over there. Let's, let's play, uh, flip through the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John twenty twenty one. Chapter 20, verse, let's say, 19. This is the same scene in John's accounting, page uh, 906. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came, he just shows up. He came and stood among them. The doors were locked, so he just like walked in. And he says, peace be with you. But he's not saying peace be with you like relax like the way I do every time I walk into the playroom and the girls are screaming about toys, I'm like, peace be with you. <laughs> Calm down, stop fighting. That's not what he's getting at here. And he makes it all the more clear because after he did this, verse 20, he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Peace be with you. That is, that this, this, all the chaos that we know in this world is nothing to us because peace has been restored with, between us and God the Father. And now no matter, no matter what comes, whatever happens, we're okay. We've been reconciled to God. Peace is with God, which goes all the way back to the singing of the angels on that first Christmas Eve. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, right? So here's this peace that's finally been brought, restoration between God and man. And Jesus is saying, he shows him his hands at his side saying, hey, peace, is, peace has been accomplished. Then, He says to them, peace be with you again, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And that's where we get our institution of confession and absolution. Jesus sending out pastors on that first Easter night to forgive sins so that we would know with the certainty that, that Jesus is forgiving our sins. Uh, so the Lord's Supper tonight, though, is our, is our, um, our target. A lot of you are gonna, who are coming from maybe different church backgrounds or different experiences with the Lord's Supper will have, have different uh, experiences there. So kind of our, the, the, our Bible interpretation move is to always, rather than starting with our own logic and reason, is to flee to the mouth of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? What is Jesus giving us? So the words of institution, which are at the end of Matthew, at the end of Luke, um, but then they're they're kind of all compiled together in 1 Corinthians 10. So let's flip over, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. So as we're getting the momentum out of 10, he's talking about... So this is page 958... Let's see. Verse 18 Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? This gets at why we do this annoying thing, which is, I mean, call it whatever you want. People call it different closed communion, closed communion, altar and pulpit fellowship. All I say is this where you eat the sacrifices, you're participants in the altar. Where a person is communing, where they're going to church, they're saying, "I believe what this church teaches." This is the whole, the whole pur- purpose of this entire class, is to ensure that you know what we're about. Because when you commune at this altar, you're saying, "I'm participating in this." What do I imply then that food offers to idols? Food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So it's not, I'm not saying that like, the Catholics are demons um, directly. <laughs> no, uh, but the idea is not, not the, the point here isn't condemning people of other altars. It is showing the unity with the altar where you are communing. So where a, where a person joins himself in, in fellowship with the Lord's Supper or joining in, in union of confession of faith. So uh, that was true for the Israelites with, when it, with regard to the, the sacrifices they were partaking in the temple. And when they would go then and go to the Baal altars, what well, you, can't, you can't eat a snack at the Baal altars because that would be saying that you believe in Baal. You don't believe in Baal and God at the same time. So you believe in God. You eat at this temple. So that gets into a little bit behind why we practice communion the way that we do. But furthermore, in Luke, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So, when you got people uh, who are actually contending for the faith and people who are masquerading, there's obviously going to be a little bit of these divisions happening. So, I believe that that that's happening in part. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you're eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What kind of what does does uh what does it take to get one drunk, Dragu? I don't drink, so I don't know. No, what does it? No, no. Can you get oh, drunk on water? Oh, no. Alcohol. That's important. I mean, the reason i call on you is because of the grape juice. Grape juice. So you have, so the in the Lord's supper, is it wine or is it grape juice? And doesn't matter. Well, they're getting drunk. What do you get drunk on? Grape juice. No, you get diabetes from grape juice. Maybe also for mine too i don 't know, but so so what 's happening here in Corinth is you 've got i mean the, the specific context in Corinth is you 've got the these this class uh, hierarchy of those who are working in the fields all day long and those who don 't have to work at all so hey let 's get to church early and crack out crack open the wine and bread and make a whole potluck meal out of this whole thing and we 're just going to it became like this feast of like Overindulging, we had basically our Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, the problem is that was that was normal. That was par for the course in, in all of the all of these um, Gentile pagan worship experiences. There's always f- like feasting to the point of intoxication and lots of sexual infidelity at taking place at the temple. Like part of the part of the rituals were like you'd go into some of these these pagan temples to find a cult prostitute and have sex on one of the altars so that God will bless your company your business, your farm or whatever. When I mean, that's if that's your idea of worship, you can kind of see why like Paul's trying to clean up so many messes in all of his letters to all these different churches in Gentile territory because they're thinking, okay, so we believe in Jesus now, let's go to church. Where's the prostitute? <laughs> that's the way I'm used to church, right? Uh, Or or like in this, we're used to feasting or something. So so they're they're trying to work through some of these confusions for the people. So they're getting together and getting smashed and eating all the stuff before the other people come for the Lord's Supper. He said, what? Verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? That's not what this is for. This is for something else. Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord but I also delivered to you. That's what stewards do. I received it from him. I'm passing it on to you. That's the teaching. That's, the, that's, the, that's really the continued role of the church. Receive from the Lord, pass it on. That the Lord Jesus on, here we go, the words of the institution. On the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So pause there. We get this clear, this is my body, this is my blood. Um, When when we're talking about the Lord's Supper, we, we talk about, some people call it the real presence. I think the more helpful term is bodily presence because some people would say, I believe in the real presence, but like, is, is it Jesus, is the one, I think the, the early church fathers would say, is the one who is on the cross the same thing that's going in your mouth? The body that's on the cross, is that the body going in your mouth? And for the, the historic Christian view, we'd say the Lutheran view today is yes, because Jesus says, this is my body. Um, and that, that was the, the, really the, the only position in the, in the historic Christian church until um, after, the, after in the context of the Protestant Reformation, you get the guys who follow Luther arguing that it's not the true body and blood of Christ because God doesn't work through physical stuff. He kind of zaps me with his forgiveness of sins. God wouldn't put himself in a box or he wouldn't, he wouldn't stick himself in, the, in, the, in a meal like this. Um, and so Luther in his debates famously um, he was debating this guy named Zwingli who was contending that it is not the true body and blood of Christ. It's a, it's, a represent, it's a symbol. It symbolizes it. And when we get together, we have this meal and we remember, he does say, do this in remembrance of me, right? We remember what Jesus has done for us, but it's not the actual body and blood of Christ. And so Luther writes in German, the German word est, which is, is. And so Zwingli, so here's the, the way the debate went. Like Zwingli would like rattle off for like 15 minutes and the Luther, he flipped the tablecloth back and he pointed at a table where he wrote Est and he, and he just leans back in his chair. And Zwingli just kept going, like making all these reasons of why it doesn't make sense. It's not rational. I mean, think about it, God. Uh, this is not, it doesn't taste like body. No, I mean, yes, I don't know what body tastes like, but they're making these rational arguments. How can it be that, that the body and blood of Jesus is present here in the same way that it's present everywhere, every other church in the world? It doesn't make any sense. And Luther just is. So Jesus says, and that's, what it is. That's our move. So that's the, the, our interpretation of the scriptures is to run to the mouth of Jesus and let him clear up our, our misunderstandings or things that, that might seem irrational or unreasonable. Um, it, is no, it is no more miraculous for him to create from nothing or to call us forgiven and saints um, to tell Lazarus to wake up and all this. So Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. So why, does he, why didn't he just give us the supper to begin with? Why didn't he just, so that on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, gave him the Lord's Supper, and then just skipped the cross. That would have been an easier way. No, go back to our formula. Salvation isn't delivered on the cross. It's one on the cross, but it's not delivered there. So his salvation that he wins on the cross, he has it delivered, Think, bl- bl- uh, blood and water spraying out of his side into a chalice and into a font. So we have the Lord, the Lord Jesus having his blood that forgives sins delivered in the, in the supper. Now, from this comes a lot of things. One, like our, our urgent desire to get back to in-person worship during COVID. If I don't believe in the in the true bodily presence of Jesus in the supper, I don't actually need to be in this space. I could be online forever because God's just gonna kind of communicate with me via the channel, the, the internet or whatever. It's not purely academic. It is him actually touching me physically with his holiness, touching my unholiness and delivering forgiveness to me because I'm physical and I need this physical certainty that my sins are forgiven. And most importantly, he says it. He says, do this often in remembrance of me. So, um, so we do. And, and our whole, uh, the architecture of the church is designed around this. So what's front and center of a, of a football stadium? The, the, all the chairs are facing, uh, now I'm speaking, you're speaking, you're, what sport is it? Softball. So in softball, I'm just, I'm just gonna mess this up, who knows. Because you got all the stadium seats here. All the people, and they got the mound and the three bases. You get the idea. Uh, All the chairs here are facing toward each other, right? All the way to the back. And so when you're watching the game and eating your popcorn, you're turned and facing to the side the whole time, right? No. They're facing the reason why you're there, right? They're all facing... They're all facing forward. I mean, it's a really simple point. The chairs are all facing the, the reason that we're here. So think about the sanctuary. What is most important is the thing that all the chairs are facing toward. What is center? What is central? The altar. The pulpit is not even central. Some, uh, some German, especially German Lutheran churches, some Catholic churches, uh, rarely you still see it in the States. They'll actually have the pulpit over the altar, like one of those super rays. Anybody see one of those? That's how our church works. Really? It's right over the altar? Some will be like on the side. But very high. Excuse me. Like three steps up, I think. So but the idea is the central even the pulpit, the, the job of the pulpit is to point to the altar. So the pulpit obviously delivering delivering Christ, um, gospel to the people according to the scriptures, but then also directing people to the supper, because that's what Jesus is giving us to do. And that's really what's always constituted the church since its institution. So um, what is central then becomes this, and that's the same way in the temple. In the temple, you got the altar there where the sacrifices are happening. Same deal now, except there's no sacrifices happening. But instead, the, salva- the sacrifice that happened once for all on the cross, the victory of that is, giving, is getting passed out on this altar. So everything kind of flows out of that. Like we have reverence in the sanctuary. It's called a sanctuary. Sanctus, sanctify, saint, all that. That's all the word for holy. So it's a holy room. What does holy mean? Set apart by God, for God, for God's purposes. So uh, it is a holy space. Not that we would go in there and goof around or play, whatever, paintball. Like we play, the youth um, play hide and go seek sometimes. Like all church hide and go seek. It's like awesome. Uh, I never thought about that. Barton's got this idea. So it's like, you can, play, you can hide anywhere you want in the church. Can't go into the classroom so that the teachers don't yell at us. And you can't go in the sanctuary because we don't play in the sanctuary. We worship in the sanctuary, right? So uh, yes, you go hide and go seek. It's all, you'd be awesome at it. You want, you want like youth softball. That's, what more you're, that's not even fair. You just demolish everyone. Anyway. Um, so the, the purpose of the sanctuary then, notice what's front and center for you architecturally, is the altar, the pulpit, the baptismal font, the Lord delivering salvation to us. That's why we're there. Now, we've got a lot of different views on this to work through. Um, for example, the um, do this in remembrance of me. So some church bodies would call the Lord's Supper a memorial meal so that, that i go to the Lord's Supper to remember what Jesus did on the cross. Well, so fine, that's, that's, uh, that's totally fine for us to remember what he did. Um, but let's think through a little bit more. Um, when Jesus, or in the Old Testament, think um, Israel in, in Egypt in Exodus 1. Do you remember, if you dig into your Sunday school archives in your brain, um, you have this weird line where the people are in bondage. Under, so a new Pharaoh took the reins, and, and all of a sudden, they had been the, the Israelites were like high, high to do under Joseph. And then a new Pharaoh came who didn't know Joseph, and all the Jews become, in, become slaves for 400 years. And then God remembered his, the, his people. To which we should ask, did he forget them? What was he doing? What else did he have going on? So when the Bible talks about God remembering, it's not that he forgot because God knows all things and he's not going to forget stuff like we forget our keys or whatever. For God to remember is for God to act towards something in mercy, to act toward them in salvation. So every case, uh, every time it comes up where God God remembered his people, Israel, and sent them a new judge, God remembered his people of Israel and, got, and sent them Moses. Over and over again, here's the rhythm. God remembers them and acts toward them in grace and mercy. So then in the New Testament here, when Jesus gives the Lord's Supper, and he says, do this as often as you, as you drink it in remembrance of me. So that makes it sound like we're doing the remembering. So one way to say, this is the phone, this is my phone, or I could say, This is the phone of me, right? Greek works the same way. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it can be understood, do this, like you remember me through this meal, which is true, that's certainly there, but we cannot rule out biblically that in this meal, God is remembering us, which means, not that he forgot about us, but it means that he's working toward us to give us salvation and grace, just like he did in all the Old Testament, Isn't that cool? Uh, But but even if we just limit it to it's us going through the intellectual exercise of remembering what Jesus did for us, that's fine. It's kind of handy to remember stuff. More importantly, though, um, it is what it is apart from what you remember. It is what it is because what he says it is. It's not your supper. It's the Lord's supper. So he calls it his body and blood so that we'd receive the cross. And it's not the body and blood of Jesus for for you to worship. So again, going back to the weird, all the, the weird like worship practices in, in the Gentile world, like um, I've got some Hindu neighbors and they're um, really cool. In case you ever listen to this, but in their house, they have, uh, they've got like the, the classic Hindu, all the Hindu statues. They've got like a m- multiplicity of gods. It's like millions of possibilities. And um, you kind of pick the god that you like and, um, but then you can put it in your house. Now, you don't actually think that that's God in your house, but there's a reverence there. And um, if you want to bless, if you want to have certain blessings, then you get the God that would bring that blessing. In the same way that some Catholics like think about the saints system. Um, so if I'm, if I'm thinking God's, God's presence in my house in the shape of a six-headed Medusa-looking weird God thing, if that's my God, if that's my, my religious system before, and if I think I bring that God into my house and I'm blessed by it, and then you show up, you, you, uh, you uh, evangelical uh, apostle, and you say, hey, this is the true body and blood of Jesus, then you think, so what do you do? When you've got a, when you've got a physical incarnation of a God, you take it home and you put it on the mantle. Right? It blesses your home. So in the early church, you, had, you have these accounts of like, people were, were like faking, like taking the bread, faking it, pocketing it, taking it home, popping it on the altar. So it, Jesus doesn't say take and worship. He says take and eat. So um, that's why you'll see some people, and I encourage, I encourage the practice, it's not bad, of putting the host, the bread, directly on, directly on the tongue, directly in the mouth. Um, because interestingly enough, after the Reformation, we start, remember the whole thing with Luther is that you can't save yourself. We, we, we did, we've gone over this a million times. You're, the tree is dead. You cannot produce good fruit. Jesus does all the work. Saved by grace alone. All Jesus. It is finished. Nothing in you. The guys who are arguing with Luther after the Reformation show up and they're like, no, we still have to make a decision. We have to do our part. God, go, God does 99.9%, but we have to do our 1.01%, right? We have to do our little bit. And uh, to, to symbolize that, when we receive the Lord's Supper, we insist that, so you come to me and I do my part. So this like, we, it was a way, it was like this secret handshake for those who believe that they had something to do with their salvation was taking the Lord's Supper into their own hand. Obviously, none of you, for those of you who are community, none of you actually think that. But it is, that is kind of the history. And it's kind of weird to have somebody else put something in your mouth. But uh, get over it. So I'd... <laughs> Uh, but so that, that's the uh, we, we, we got both practices but if you ever wonder like you look over and some weird lady next to you is sticking out her tongue at me and I throw a, you know, if I throw the bread on her tongue that's what's going on that's the reason why that is back during COVID we had some like Pez dispensers with a Jesus head on it and we just pop it at i <laughs> that'd be a cool idea <laughs> um, it's also why after the Lord's Supper if you've noticed we go through the process of actually consuming all the, all the leftovers. And we, 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 we go to great annoying lengths to make sure we don't have too much because the bread doesn't taste all that great. So it's not like we're having like wine and cheese up there. It's like this flavorless unleavened bread. Um, and we're trying to share it amongst their pastors and also with the wine. So we have the people, the ushers take the head count and they come in the closet and they write it down on a post-it note. And then during the hymn of the day, one of the pastors who's sitting on that side sneaks around and sees what the number is. If we set up for 150, but there's only 120 here, we've got like 30 extra wine servings. And they're like, okay, how much do I want to nap this afternoon? <laughs> and you adjust accordingly. And they take, the, and also the other guess is, do we use the chalice or the individual cups? Well, Jesus, what did Jesus use? So run to the mouth of Jesus. He took the cup after supper. And the cup, from the cup, we have this, this symbolism of joining together in one cup, just as in one, in one loaf, one bread. So um, is it the body and blood of Christ if you choose to take the individual cup? Certainly. It's the blood that matters. is the main thing. It is a very recent innovation in, in Christian church history. So like for the tu- tuberculosis scare in the early 20th century, people... Um, Started having individual cups, and COVID didn't help us, of course. Um, but just so you know, like the wine, the wine is what's um, like eighteen percent port, and uh, and we actually wipe the rim with Everclear, if you know what that is. <laughs> but don't worry, we don't consume the Everclear again unless we want to nap a lot in the afternoon. Um, but that's what the ushers are doing, or the the sacristans, the guy who helped us uh, distribute this, the sacrament, is we're constantly. Dip the, dipping the purificator in, in Everclear and wiping the room just to give peace of mind. Ultimately, that's not necessary either, but whatever. Um, but it is it is the body and blood of Christ, even if it's not. But we start to get into fuzzy, term, fuzzy areas the more we remove ourselves from the words of institution. So that's why we're uncomfortable with things like, hey, pastor, during COVID, um, whenever like you guys were doing church, we would break out a bottle of our finest Cabernet and go down to Panera and get a loaf of bread and we had communion at home. It just We just held up in front of the TV so that when you said the words of institution, it kind of like jumped through the screen and people were doing this and probably still are. You, you might experience this or heard about it, on, online communion. Some of you are like, we're still doing it now. Um, the problem with this is, it's, the, the, the big thing is, the more we remove from the mouth of Jesus and the institution of Jesus, all we're doing is bringing in certainty. I think we had the same discussion. We talked about things like uh, baptism with sand. Why would, I use, why would I do that? When Jesus is, I mean, clearly baptism was given to be, to be given with water, and so he's attached this promise. With the Lord's Supper, we could take the words of institution and use Pepsi and Doritos. If it's all about the word, why not Pepsi and Doritos? So will, will, can Pepsi and Doritos carry the forgiveness of sins to you? Or maybe get closer, I mean that's an absurd example. Let's say it's, um, it's grape juice, or if it's thick in the alcohol category, beer, and um, we'll stick with Doritos, Doritos. Are <laughs> it's flavorless. So, all we're doing is bringing in doubt. The, the, the best example of this would be my is like my daughters and, and many children. People people text me um, like their kids singing the words of institution. So, like if your kids singing the words of institution while they're playing snack time with their dolls. Is that the word? Is that the Lord's Supper? Well, it's a graham cracker and lemonade, and it's not a pastor, and it's a girl. <laughs> um, so, but all we're doing is we're bringing doubt. So the Lord wants to remove all doubt. So we, that's why we have the, the office of the ministry. So we have the pastor. Um, we have the words of institution. We have the context of the church. Um, Saint... Cyprian of Carthage, one of the early bishops of the church, um, said that the church is wherever the pastor, the pastor is gathered at the altar with his people. So, so it's the pastor giving the Lord's Supper at the altar to the, the congregation that's gathered around there, congregation if you want. So that's why you don't have like a pastor going off and doing the Lord's Supper all by himself. So like during COVID, COVID, it was tempting at times. I thought, you know, I mean, we couldn't get to church. Mandy's like hounding me for the Lord's Supper, <laughs> legit. She's like, when can we can have the Lord's Supper again. Let's go. I'm like, I could just do it here. But it's not for that. It's not my personal gift. It's the Lord's Supper and it belongs to the church. She, Mandy wasn't pushing. She, she wanted me to actually do it at church. But um, So the idea is we take away the altar, according to Cyprian, we take away the altar. And we just have the pastor and the congregation, no church. Take away the pastor, you just have the altar and the congregation, no church. So it's all three. That's the formula. So the idea is, because what's the pastor doing? He's delivering the goods. He's the steward, handing over the stuff to, to God's people. Uh, so going back to the certainty point, um, we, we try to get as close to the words of Jesus as possible. And... Then he also says, um, since he says, take eat, take drink, we, we, um, we, eat the, we eat the leftovers. If it's a crazy amount, we reverently pour it. We eat the bread, and we reverently pour the, the wine. Although one time, it was just very embarrassing. We used to have ch- church on Saturday night. Beth, I'll tell you this. I can't remember. We used to have church on Saturday night. we get like sometimes 10 people, sometimes 80 people. T- there's no way to tell. And there's only one pastor at the time. Uh, for those services. So you kind of had to guess, you'd set the altar, and then like you could have more, a lot more people show up or less people. And so one Sunday, I remember I had like a full chalice, and like no one took the chalice. Everybody took the individual cups. So I had an entire chalice, and I had no help. And I was all alone. Everybody just blew out of there after church. So I was there all alone, and the door, there's a secret passage door behind the sacristy. If you, like, if you approach the altar and turn left, it's like a back door. And so I'm like, I, I'm not going to drink this whole chalice because I'll get a DUI. Um, and we don't want to pour it down the drain. Why? What goes down the drain? Poop. Poop. Now, yeah, that's, that's that the this direct way to get there. This sewage. Well, so some churches have a special, a special sink in their in their sacristies that actually goes not into the sewage, but actually goes directly into the ground. And it only it's only meant for pouring out extra wine. So it um, doesn't have like a disposal, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles, just pour in the wine, it goes into the ground directly. Um, we don't have that. So we, we's treated, we do everything as reverently as we can. And I will add that if, if anybody would, would allow his his blood to be mixed with sewage, it would be our Lord Jesus. I mean, he, he's, he's spit upon, he, he comes in weakness and allows, um, allows himself to be shamed. But ultimately, according to our confession, it is the body and blood of Jesus. What are we doing here? It's like, why do, you, why do we dress up for church? We don't have to dress up, God doesn't care. But we dress up for what's important to us. What's more important than this, than coming to God's house? Um, I mean, we we try ideally we try to make the sanctuary look nice and we don't have to. We could we can we can meet on a card table and a you know, we don't need anything. But what's more important than this? Where are we gonna spend our money? What's what could be a better use of funds? So anyway, I, so I, this back door, I like there's a the door has a lock on it, and I didn't have my keys, and I was in a hurry. So so I had this chalice full of wine and I have this door open. And if if you've gone to the back door, it's like a a step down and they have to go up the stairs and around this like rail. And the chalice is too wide to get through the safety rail. Like I couldn't get it through to pour it in the ground, but I'm tall so I could reach over the top. So here I am, I'm kind of leaning as far as I can, holding the door, I'm leaning over the top of this rail and I pour this full chalice of wine, at which time the wind decides to blow all that wine back on me. So my entire my entire all was covered and the and I was wearing like the the stole and the oh. so I walk up to my uh to Sue Dumford. Sue, do you know how to get wine out of everything? <laughs> that was embarrassing. That was the last time we did that. So now we kind of just reverently pour it outside when we get a chance. But anyway, um, we're kind of at time. So what I want to do the the This next piece of the words of institution or following the words of institution, verse 27, is uh, very helpful. And maybe I'll give the abridged version because I know, is everybody going to be able to be here next week? For those of you who are here now? Because I'd like to maybe spend more time unfolding this second piece next week, but maybe I'll do the quick version. Um, So verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of of will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So now we've got, what what enters in here is this potentiality for unworthy consumption of God's gift here. Whoever eats the bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty. So I don't want to be guilty concerning the the body and blood. I don't want to be responsible. I want to be held responsible for his crucifixion. So I would like to eat it in a worthy manner. It's a working pen, Beth, I noticed. Um, let a person, so I want to be worthy. So, what makes a person worthy? What would you think? We think about worthiness according to our standards. Like, you're not worthy to go on the road trip because you did something wrong. Or you're worthy to be a starter because you did something really good, right? So, our, our, our idea of worthiness is, based, is tied up to personal reward, or punishment, whether you're worthy or unworthy for something. So when it comes to worthiness for the Lord's Supper, where, where would you think? Where's, where's kind of like our, our worldly perspective of worth? Well, I gotta be good enough. Except what's the kind of person that Jesus calls to church? Only sinners. So to be worthy for the Lord's Supper is not to be sinless, but in fact to be sinful. The difference of the repentant sinner is one who recognizes their sin and says, calls it what it is. I've got sin, I don't want it anymore, It's, it's killing me here. I'm bringing it to you, Jesus, please clean it up, right? So that's a proper way of understanding worthiness, but it gets even better. So am I worthy or not? How do I find out? Let's see. Let a person examine himself, therefore, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. All right, good. So if I want to be worthy, how do I find out if I'm worthy or not? I examine myself. All right, simple enough, right? What question does this bring up? Yeah, examine with what? Right. So if you have a teacher say, get ready for your test on Friday, it's like, which subject? What's it gonna be on? What are the questions? So if I'm, if, I'm being, if I'm supposed to examine myself, a fair question to ask Paul would be, how? What am I looking for, right? Well, keep going. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, discern the body. So I, I want to I be worthy and not unworthy, so I'm not guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so I need to examine myself. And what do I do to examine myself? I'm asking one question. Do I discern the body or not? Now, this raises a question too. What does, what does that mean? Well, discern, in short, so uh, famously um, Solomon prays for uh, wisdom. He's famous for being rich, womanizing, wise. <laughs> Those don't all go together. For some... But he prays for wisdom in some translations. But the the, the Hebrew word there, he prays for wisdom, and it hey, was well, let's look. First, First Kings. We're doing time. Here, one minute. Perfect. First Kings four, I think. Three It's close. It was in the. All right, verse 5. So Solomon's Prayer. Uh, This is page 282. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on the throne to this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. I don't know what I'm doing. This job is scary. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, a, a, an understanding mind to govern your people. The Hebrew there is clear. A hearing heart, not an understanding mind. The idea is there. I mean, you're, you think, okay, I want my mind to understand stuff. Hearing heart's a little bit different. So heart would be like the conscience, the way I make decisions. Is this good, bad, evil? Hearing means the right way to, for my heart to be functioning is going to be informed from the outside. So Solomon's asking, God, you got to tell me what I'm doing here. A hearing heart. Speak to my conscience with your law, right? That I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And it pleases the Lord and gives them not only wisdom and discernment, but also great riches, right? So that I may discern between good and evil. Very often we'll use the word discern and conflate it with understanding. Understanding would be like, I understand, um, if a person understands how the inside of a car works, or like you understand how to make diesel fuel out of like, crude oil, like I don't even, (laughs) I do not understand that. But I know this, I know that if I get it on me, I don't wanna get anywhere close to fire, right? I don't have to understand how that works to understand what'll happen to me if I burst into flames. So that's the difference in discernment and understanding. I don't understand how electricity works, but I know if I stick my finger in the socket, it'll kill me. So understanding is to be able to cut to this, 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 word for discern comes from the same Hebrew root for Hebrew root for cut between good and evil, life and death. Ultimately, it's the same. Good and life and death and evil are in the same thing. Maybe I'll unfold this more next week. But think, the the Ten Commandments are defining what is good according to what is life. Honor your father and mother. That's good. But from father and mother come children, and all of society really. Don't murder because murder takes away from life. Don't commit adultery because marriage is toward life. Don't tear away at that. Don't steal another person's stuff because their stuff is part of their being. Don't hurt their name because their name is part of their being. It hurts when people talk bad about your reputation. It cuts you, right? So all the commandments are defining what is good according to what is in the realm of life and what is evil is in the realm of death. Now, interestingly, right after this, the first thing he gets to go to bat as a king in verse 16. This is like, what, 10 verses later? Then two prostitutes come to the king. The famous scene. Two prostitutes show up. One woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, because we're prostitutes, it's a brothel, and I give birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she laid on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning the nurse to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, I behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead is yours, and the living is mine. Thus they spoke to the king. This predicament of whose, whose kid is it, Who's, who's got the living kid, who's got the dead kid? Then the king said, putting his discernment to, to play right away, this one says, this is my son and that is alive, your son is dead. The other says, no, your son is dead and my son's the living one. The king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, cut the little child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh no, my lord, give the living child uh, to her and do not put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him, cut him in half. The king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. It was never his idea. He was never gonna kill the baby, but the idea is by this perfect scene. Discern, he prayed for discernment to cut between life and death, good and evil. So cut the baby in half. And from that statement, life was exposed, right? So Jesus says to discern, discern the body, or Paul says to discern the body, means is what's happening at the altar life or death? That's all I'm really looking for when I'm, when I'm, at, when I'm like putting kids through confirmation. It's all about teaching them to discern the body. There's a lot, I mean, it seems like a simple enough answer just say, yes, it's the body of Christ and move on. But there's a lot that goes into this because if I'm saying that on the altar is the true body of Christ and that it's for the forgiveness, it's, it's for my good, why is, it, why is it good? Well, because it delivers salvation to me. Well, I'm already confessing that God works through means and I'm confessing that I need something What's the need that I have? I need forgiveness, which means I have a problem. What's the problem that I'm confessing? Sin, which which is why we start with the 10 Commandments. So we teach the 10 Commandments so that we know the depth of our sin, so that we know what death is. We know what bad is, we know what evil is. And so when I look at the altar, I say, this is good, I am bad. This is life, I have death, right? So the entire catechism process, the confirmation task, is getting after this. We don't want to eat and drink in an unworthy manner, and so we need to examine ourselves, but we're not examining ourselves asking you 500 questions about every minutia of the Bible or the catechism, which some of you might have gone through that in confirmation, like, Beth, was yours, were you like half German catechized? (laughs) Not that bad? (laughs) Your dad wasn't, your dad took it easy on you? Some folks will have crazy stories, like our grandparents' generation, uh, they had to like, stand in front of the church and answer like 500 questions about really minute, minutiae things. All it's after is, is it the abiding blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins or not? And if it is, then why is it good for you? And so that's what we're walk through the kids. And that's what we're after in this, that's what we're after in this class um, is teaching the full, the full teaching of this altar so that you're, you know the altar that you're joining yourself with and you're able to say, yes, this is life and not death, right? So next week, we'll talk more about the um, Christian life. We can answer more questions about the Lord's Supper. I went a little over there. Sorry about that. Um, if you got quite, I know, you, I know many of you might have questions about the Lord's Supper from your backgrounds, or experiences. Um, please bring those next week so i will have more time to talk about that. Let's close with uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, wine and cheese, or wine and pizza, or uh, carbonated water and pizza, uh, whatever you're in the mood for, we'll have t- tomorrow at 6.30, uh, 6.30 to 8.30, bring your kids. I'm bringing my super noisy, crazy three, so uh, the bar is low there. Um, the idea is to, to get to know the leadership of the church, get to chat more with each other. Um, all, the, all the board heads will be here. Uh, a big a lot of representatives from the congregation. So um, that's the idea. If none of you show up, they're still having a cool party. Um, But the idea is it's for you. So uh, if you can, can, I'm sure Beth's going to be emailing you. uh, Let her know if you're coming or not. And if you're looking to join, get this information filled out back to Beth. Thanks, guys.